Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. By now, we know most of the results of last week's primary races in Connecticut. There was some controversy in Bridgeport and competitive races for state treasurer and secretary of the state. But few contests were as closely watched as the Republican nomination for U.S. Senate. GOP establishment stalwart and former State House Minority Leader Themis Clardis lost to Trump-backed challenger Lior Levy. Levy will now face Senator Richard Blumenthal in November. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're talking about the major takeaways from the primary and looking ahead to what it could mean for the general election. Our panelists are Dan Haar, columnist and associate editor at Hearst Connecticut Media. Dr. Stephen T. Moore is assistant professor of government at Wesleyan University. And Lisa Hagen is federal policy reporter for the Connecticut Mirror and Connecticut Public. I want to start with this very tight Democratic race for the 23rd State Senate District that includes Bridgeport. That election pitted incumbent Senator Dennis Bradley against a challenger, the Reverend Dr. Heron Gaston. Gaston won with 52 percent of the vote. And so I asked Dan, what tipped the election in Gaston's favor? A couple of years ago in his re-election campaign then, he made uh, perhaps a mistake. We don't. It has not been adjudicated. He still has a trial coming up uh, in which he was. He is accused and was charged and arrested for. Um, actually, it's some people think that when you see political corruption, that it's taking money. What he did was he spent his own money improperly uh, on a party. Uh, that's the charge. We don't know that he, he denies the charge. He uh, subsequently has been stripped of all committee assignments, and that's usually a death knell for re-election, uh, as we'll, we'll be talking about other <laughs> two two cases in Bridgeport today involving that. Uh, and so he simply did not get the re-nomination, the re-endorsement from the party uh, committee in Bridgeport, and uh, he lost in a in very, very low turnout race. Uh, to uh, a fellow by the name of Heron Gaston, who's a, a local pastor uh, and, a, and a charismatic figure in the community and, uh, you know, promises to bring a new energy. Uh, Bradley has always been a bit of an enigmatic character in the Senate. Uh, he, he was always sort of kept his own counsel, so to speak. So uh, I think there were some people who were happy to get rid of him, even notwithstanding the wrongdoing uh, accusation. Dan, we see this trend in Bridgeport of people being able to recover from these kinds of allegations or these types of investigations when it comes to politics. There's a noted trend of that in Bridgeport. Do you think that we should expect to see more of Dennis Bradley in politics, or do you think this may be the end of the road for that political career? I think that he will be back if he's exonerated or uh, found not guilty, and he seems to be carrying through. He does not appear to be moving toward uh, pleading out to a lesser charge. And so, you know, this is an unusual case. This is a person who, again, in political corruption, money usually flows one way. Here, money is flowing the other way. He spent, I think, $5,000, or is accused of spending, I think, $5,000 on a party that wasn't declared. 
um, he's a little different from many politicians in Bridgeport in that uh, because he's a, a pretty well-known, uh, influential attorney, he has you know more money uh, than than a lot of people, and and he spent it or he was accused of spending it. So I don't. Nobody purports to predict Bridgeport politics, uh, but as you alluded, we've seen the mayor, uh, Mayor Ganim. Uh, we've seen Representative Newton come back. Uh, so there's no reason to believe he will not. He's a popular figure. There's no question about that. And he 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 does hold mainstream Democratic beliefs. Uh, he's not, as as with Jack Hennessy, outside the mainstream. So let's talk about Jack Hennessy. And I want to bring in Stephen Moore to this point as we continue talking about Bridgeport. In Bridgeport, we saw this close fight for the 127th State House seat between longtime Democratic Rep, as Dan mentioned, Jack Hennessy, and City Councilman Marcus Brown. As of the taping of this conversation, Brown leads Hennessy by just five votes, and a recount is already scheduled. We won't know the immediate outcome, of course, of that recount, but Stephen, what does this race tell us about shifting demographics or perhaps priorities in Bridgeport? Um, yeah. So first, this race just kind of shows how important voting can be, um, especially in uh, these low turnout elections. Um, the margin here is just uh, like incredibly small. So this will be kind of, uh, it'll be very kind of interesting to see how the um, the next election uh, shakes out here. Um, but it does uh, kind of seem to reflect uh, again these kind of trends within Bridgeport, um, and especially the kind of uh, growing non-white population, um, again, as a share of the city, even in the kind of um, the past uh, 10 to 20 years, the um, the area that is um, white has kind of dropped a good bit. And uh, again, this uh, kind of showing in the, um, the kind of candidates that are able to be competitive um, in this area. So the, um, the fact that uh, Brown, the challenger here, uh, is a black uh, candidate, again, seems to definitely kind of help him uh, in this race. Yeah, I want to broaden this out a little bit, Lisa, because Professor Moore is talking about the changing demographics in Bridgeport. But there's a national story here. And one of those pieces of the national story is that we've been hearing these allegations of voter fraud. And that is a part of a national narrative that we're seeing being played out by particular political parties. But it's something that's on the mind of many Americans heading into the fall. What's the level of uh, faith in the integrity of the process that we can have and how the impact of the 2020 presidential election, the lingering impact of that continues. What are you seeing at the federal level when you hear this conversation about elections, allegations of voter fraud, even though the reality is that that is such a small occurrence, such a rare occurrence? What are you seeing at the federal level? Exactly. Uh, 2020 is still very prominent going into 2022, and we're seeing a lot of distrust, mainly from Republicans and people who are very loyal to former President Trump uh, about potential voter fraud. And it's exactly as you say, there's just very small instances of it. Those do exist, but this whole narrative of rampant widespread fraud just doesn't exist. And so that's why we're seeing Secretary of State races loom so large this time around. They're not typically, uh, they don't typically attract a lot of attention, but uh, I think you're seeing that also in Connecticut because uh, of these allegations of fraud. And so they're coming to the forefront. And it's, again, this fight between Democrats and Republicans of Democrats wanting to expand uh, access to the ballot box and Republicans kind of pull back and use the 2020 fraud allegations as a reason to kind of clamp down on 
on access to voting. We're going to come back to talking about the Secretary of State race here in Connecticut, because as you said, Lisa, it is connected to this national conversation that's happening. But I think it also shows, Dan, that there is tremendous variation, not just between the two political parties, but even within political parties and amongst the candidates that are running. Let's go to West Haven as an example of that, where we saw State Rep. Trinae McGee, who was defending her position in the primary, winning that against her opponent, Joseph Miller. McGee has stood out in Connecticut politics because she has uh, said very candidly and openly that she is opposed to abortion access. She sees it as an issue of racial justice, of not encouraging uh, black women and girls or women of color in particular to see abortion as an option. And so she had this very standout vote against Connecticut being the state to protect access in that way. Given what we've seen at the national level, concerns about um, you know Roe v. Wade being overturned, what does McGee's win say, Dan, about the district, about the state of Connecticut, or perhaps sort of changes within the Democratic Party? Well, first of all, in all of these races, there is no ideal type ability to separate one set of beliefs from all the other factors that are going on. As we see with uh, with both uh, Senator Bradley and Representative Hennessy, they were people who wanted both of them out. And they had a very nice, convenient excuse that both had been, for different reasons, stripped of their uh, ch- uh, committee assignments. And therefore, boom, you're gone. That gives you a chance. In the case of Trinae McGee, by the way, I should add, at age 27, she's the second youngest member of the House, and she was running against the person three years younger than she is, which, how does that make the rest of us feel? I don't know, but there you go. That's that's a youth movement which we could talk about. I don't, know, I don't necessarily see it happening in great force, but to get back to the issue as to, with all that as a precursor, as to her uh, vote. First of all, it was not a standout vote. There were seven women of color who voted Democrats, all Democrats. There are no women of color of Republicans that I'm aware of. I should. Oh, no, no, not true. There are. Uh, I stand corrected. There were seven who voted against that. And that is a belief that there is that, that, that the, you know, gee, maybe the pendulum has swung too far. There were also people concerned in in, in the minority communities that lowering the threshold of who can perform a surgical abortion is a bad idea for minority communities because guess who gets the lower level of care? And so there was some cover for her for that. She's very popular. She's intelligent. She speaks about a broad number of issues. And as the speaker uh, Ritter said, she's not the problem. She's not going to be the person who undoes reproductive rights in Connecticut. So with all of that swirling, the voters saw that and didn't necessarily vote against abortion rights when they voted for her in the primary. And to piggyback off of Dan on that, it's it's interesting, you know, her perspective on being anti-abortion is very unique for the Democratic Party. I mean, they exist, you know, all across the country, but a lot of the times, in, you know, in congressmen and women or senators that I, I've covered before, they typically use religious beliefs as a reason to be anti-abortion. And she, so she has a unique perspective talking about it through the lens of racial justice. And so I think that also kind of broadens out this, uh, this big tent party that Democrats always talk about and having people of other views in the party. We're joined by Lisa Hagen, reporter for Connecticut Mirror and Connecticut Public. Dan Haar is columnist and associate editor at Hearst Connecticut Media. And Dr. Stephen T. Moore is professor at Wesleyan University. 
When we return, our panel talks about some of the statewide races that could have a major impact on the national political stage. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. We want to pick up on our conversation about Connecticut's primary and how what we saw in those races could help us predict the November midterm. I'm joined by Dan Haar of Hearst Connecticut Media, Stephen T. Moore of Wesleyan University, and Lisa Hagen of the Connecticut Mirror and Connecticut Public. I asked Dan about the re-election bid of probate judge Peter Mariano. His law license was suspended earlier this year after he received a third DUI. Mariano lost the Republican bid for his seat, and now he's running as a Democrat. Here's Dan Haar. Well, first of all, again, to get back to the, 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 the theme, that it's always about many factors, and including the person rather than the issue. And in his case, what I'm hearing from people is that many Democrats think he's a, he just simply is a good judge. He's a good probate judge. Right. And as you know, that there are there are good probate judges and bad probate judges because it's a person who can be elected on relatively few votes. It's almost always a popularity contest. And so a local lawyer can become elected probate judge, be in for life and be lousy. I've known some. He was said to have been a good probate judge. And so the Democrats picked him up because they liked him. And so his chance of winning is relatively low because he's running against not an unknown local lawyer, but a a, a very well-known local uh, state representative, uh, 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 Representative Rabimbus. So there's a lot swirling in this. There are some also accusations that he was in a little too cozy with the Democrats. You know, there's always that. This is a multi-town district. Uh, and so there's there's that layered as well. But I would say it's a close race. I would say he's definitely in the running to keep his seat. So, Lisa, let's let's move on from talking about some of these local races to talking about statewide races that really have national implications and national connections. And one of those races that people may not immediately get a national connection is actually the race for state treasurer here in Connecticut. Eric Russell became the Democratic nominee in that competition. He is a lawyer, a partner at a law firm, and will face Republican state rep Harry Aurora this November. One of the ways that this is gaining national attention is that if Eric Russell wins, he will be the first black openly LGBTQ politician to hold statewide office 
in the history of the United States. There's a lot to unpack there, a lot of layers to that potential to make history. How is that important in a national context when we're talking about changing demographics in the U.S., but really shifting opportunities to elect people in places and in positions that they may not have appeared before? Why is this significant? We've seen representation grow at, at a national level, you know, beyond Connecticut, especially in Congress, and especially that that really kind of got fostered in the Trump era. You know, a lot of backlash to Trump, a lot of uh, women and people of color and people of color who are women just kind of emerging and and taking really powerful, influential positions throughout the country. And so now we're seeing that in Connecticut. I mean, we you know we saw uh, with the primaries two. Black candidates advance in both the secretary of the state race and then as well as the state treasurer. And then on top of that, for Eric Russell, just being openly LGBTQ as well. And so I think, uh, you know, he was saying that the race kind of got a lot of national attention or or just more focus in general because of of inflation and and these economic issues just being very pronounced uh, all all throughout the country. And so uh, I think that kind of adds to it as, you know, more diversity and other kinds of people overseeing these really important issues that we're seeing play out in Connecticut and just all across the country. Dan, why does Eric Russell stand out within the states? We heard from Lisa what this means nationally, sort of this this sort of connection to what's happening nationally. But one of the things you when you were talking about Trinae McGee, I also thought about Eric Russell, who, given the current slate of statewide elected officials in Connecticut, he is markedly younger than the people that we already see in office. But what is it about Eric Russell that helped him stand out in the state and that people are sort of paying attention to perhaps in a different way? Well, when you talk to Eric Russell, which I've done many times, he has a lot of enthusiasm. Uh, and he brings a, a tremendous amount of energy and new ideas. He was as vice chair of the uh, Democratic State Central Committee. He formed a number of sort of subgroups that, by affinity, uh, including LGBT. And he's a, uh, he was one of the youngest people to make a partner at his law firm, which is a significant law firm in the state. And he, uh, in, in respect to his candidacy for state treasurer, there's nothing unusual about him. There has not been a non-Black Connecticut Democratic state treasurer nominee since, are you ready for this? Drum roll, please. 1958. You heard that correct. 1958. 64 years ago was the last time the Democratic Party in Connecticut nominated someone for state treasurer who was not Black. Uh, and he also is in the mainstream in respect to his profession. He's a bond counsel. And so he is neither typically in Connecticut. The nominee for treasurer on the Democratic side is not a money manager, but is someone who has a, some work in that field. It has been, of course, a state, a, a city treasurer uh, a couple of times. So that's a money manager in a sense. So there's nothing unusual about his candidacy. I think uh, nationally, the picture is that he He's, you know, at age 33, one of the rising young stars of a party in in a state. So, Professor Moore, you are a political scientist. And, you know, given my profession, I, I feel a particular affinity there. 
But what I think is interesting, given what Dan just said, that not since 1958 have we seen this candidate for office not be of a particular demographic group. Some people may say, is there a sort of agreement in Connecticut that treasurer will be the one space where a candidate of color can be successful or that the party will say will focus there? Because in Connecticut, we now see the potential to have a secretary of state who will represent different groups in terms of demographics and an identity-based affiliation there. So is this an opportunity to leverage some of those interests to expand representation across statewide office in a very different way? Yeah, I think it definitely is a, a good opportunity to do so. Um, I, I would say that it um, it does seem like it would um, it, take a kind of leap of faith to think that you could get that um, that level of consistency kind of without um, at least some kind of intentionality to it. But in general, I do think that the efforts to kind of um, try and make the um, candidates look a little bit more like uh, how the, the state seems to be kind of changing um, is definitely a good trend. And um, I do think that, again, it's kind of notable that this um, uh, the candidate diversity is kind of um, limited, let's say, to the um, some of the uh, lower positions on the, the statewide ticket. But in general, it, it is kind of uh, definitely important for the, um, especially the, the Democratic Party in the state, given um, its need to turn out more diverse voters in the state to kind of try and ensure that at least they have, uh, uh, they can say that they are really kind of trying to actually represent these communities and the people that they are, are putting forth uh, to run uh, the state. Um, so I think that that's generally a, um, definitely a good trend. But again, it would be, um, it'd be good to see that uh, again, move to some of the um, the most important positions that the party has for the state. Dan, let's talk about some of the nuts and bolts of this race for Secretary of State. We see Democratic State Representative Stephanie Thomas running against Republican Dominic Rapini for Secretary of State. Given all of the false claims of voter fraud, given all of the allegations that happened in the 2020 presidential election that we've seen trickle into not just Connecticut, but many other states across the country, what is the impact that you think this election could have on how Connecticut voters cast their ballots, but also the kind of faith that Connecticut voters have in the election process overall? Well, first of all, there has not been a statewide Republican elected since 2006. That was when Governor uh, Rell won her uh, her first full term uh, overwhelmingly, and that's 16 years ago. So it's it's likely that the Democrat, in this case, Stephanie Thomas, Representative Stephanie Thomas from Norwalk, will win. Um, this is, in some ways, an ideal type distinction between a, a uh, Dominic Rapini was the further right of the two candidates for Secretary of the State on the Republican side, and he has made some accusations of voter fraud, and been and those accusations have been found by the state regulatory authority not to be valid. Uh, so he's very much in that game uh, of of being concerned about voter fraud. Stephanie Thomas, on the other hand, is a, a, a little bit less zealous about, she's plenty zealous about opening up voting, but that's not been her big issue. Her big issue is who I am and I'm, I'm, I'm competent and, and I believe in, it, don't get me wrong, she believes strongly in opening up the vote in as many ways as possible. The big issue in Connecticut is not so much voter fraud as 
the, the, the ID. The Republicans want the voter ID, and they believe that that's a rational thing. So that in some ways, it's ideal type. He has a very strong personality, and he has a chance of winning. Among all the uh, down-ticket statewide races, he has probably the strongest chance of winning. One of um, the... If I can just jump in. Oh, go ahead. Please, go ahead, Stephen. Uh, uh, I was just going to quickly say that I, I do think it's important to note, again, how the, uh, the really kind of frightening nature of the um, some of these... Um, so at least the like the Republican Party's kind of broader embrace of the kind of completely um, fact-free uh, claims of voter fraud um, that were kind of pushed by Trump during the election. Um, and uh, again, I, uh, I don't think Rapini kind of endorsed those, and he's again been kind of more on the side of just um, uh, increasing election security. But the um, I, I did like Dan's kind of phrasing earlier of uh, unvoter fraud is the problem again, given the relatively low levels of turnout um, uh, that we saw in the election. Uh, again, there, there are plenty of ways to help increase voter participation to make sure that more uh, of the state is able to actually have their voice heard. And um, the kind of embrace of these uh, kind of completely baseless uh, conspiracy theories is uh, a, a, a very bad trend and one that kind of reflects some of the kind of um, more um, troubling points in our history where um, voting was very limited and very intentionally uh, kind of uh, restricted to certain populations. Um, but it, um, so yeah, it's kind of important to call out again how again, troubling that trend is uh, for kind of the future of, uh, of American politics just more broadly. Lisa, we've heard two really great phrases, but also two troubling phrases during this show unvoter fraud and fact-free claims, right? Those two anchoring points as we think about politics. And moving toward these national elections or federal elections, one of the real upsets that happened last week was the Republican race for the Senate or nomination for the Senate, which was many, for many people, a shocking upset to see former House Minority Leader Themis Claritus losing to Leora Levy in that election. The context and the timing of what was happening in the investigation uh, against former President Trump at his estate in Mar-a-Lago, that happening, a last-minute phone-in endorsement by the former president to this candidate, many people thought played out in a different way. Walk us through what happened in that race and why that upset was such a major victory and shocking point for many people. It's interesting because Trump has had a kind of a mixed bag of his endorsements throughout the primary season. And so we've seen him come in late to a primary and try to make his mark. And so in Connecticut, we saw him about... about five days before the primary, call in and make this endorsement. And so everyone's wondering, what kind of effect will this have? And then we see the eve before he's going to do a tele-rally and then the FBI raid happens and just an insane amount of momentum just kind of kind of builds for that. And then she pulls off a very decisive victory. But I think something worth noting that we've all been mentioning is the very low turnout in this race. So while, you know, Clearly, people who voted that night wanted, you know, a Donald Trump type of candidate and Leora Levy. It's a really small subset of Republican voters. I think only 21 percent of registered Republicans voted that night. And so uh, I don't want to discount his influence and the clear desire for Republicans to still have him in the party and especially in Connecticut. But uh, that's why I think it's so interesting as we move to general election, because more Republicans and those unaffiliated voters will have a say and 
uh, you know, in Connecticut, it's it's just been since 1988 since Republican has won a U.S. Senate race. Dan Levy will face off against Senator Richard Blumenthal in this election in November. And given, as Lisa mentioned, the very low voter turnout during the primary, but also these other factors that are swirling, it is hard to deny the tremendous national profile that Blumenthal has built and the popularity of that and how that may translate into a race in November where you will not only have independents who can vote in that election, but there will also be this conversation about how things like seniority and experience may play out, whether it's used as a credential or a critique. And I also can't forget that Dan, one of the last conversations you and I had on air about two years ago were the rumors. We were on the air together. I can't even remember. I know it seems like, you know, in COVID years, it always seems like decades. But the conversation at that point was about whether Claritas would be running for governor of Connecticut and whether she would seek the Republican nomination. And many people thought that running for Senate would give Republicans a better chance at grasping this seat because of her more moderate positions. What should we expect looking forward to November in this particular Senate race? What should we expect and what are you focusing on? Leora Levy only has a chance of winning if Dick Blumenthal really screws up in some royal way, uh, like claims, you know, similar to his claim that he was in Vietnam, which, by the way, the, the, the former president, Trump, uh, is, is lying about that, just like he lies about everything. And he's saying that all it's all his quote during the rally last Monday was it's all he would talk about. Well, the reality is that I'm not excusing Blumenthal for misstating his service, and that's not okay by any means. But he misstated his service on between one and three occasions. And that was not something cool. And he, and he said, instead of saying, I, I served during Vietnam, he said, I served in Vietnam. So to say that he was bragging about serving in Vietnam is just a lie. And that's what the Republicans need to do to win. It's just a cold, hard fact. It's not, I'm not being anti-Republican. It's that they need to stretch the truth or they can't win elections. They, they either need to use that or obviously in red states, it's the opposite, it's the Democrats. But nationally, the electoral college is the, the system that they have. But to get back to, to the Levy campaign, um, she is, it, it cannot be overstated how extreme she is in Connecticut. This is a person who voted against the resolution for the resolution, I'm sorry, in the Republican National Committee meeting in Salt Lake City in June of this year to say that the the mob scene at the Capitol was legitimate political discourse. She went against every Republican in the Northeast, I believe, certainly the two others from Connecticut who were there on the committee, right? This is a far, far extreme person. And she's not trying to hide the fact She's also, she's an insider. She's claiming she's an outsider, which is a little bit hilarious. She's a, she's a very, she, she can be a warm and, and genuine seeming person in person. And so in that sense, she can be a good campaigner. That's why she beat Themis Claris. She beat Themis Claris both because of the reasons we've been talking about and because she was a much better campaigner. Um, and so there's a lot swirling around here. I don't expect she would win, but I don't think the Democrats would or should take her non-seriously. They should take her seriously. Lisa, Dan mentioned Levy voting for the resolution, saying that the insurrection, the attempted overthrow of the United States Democratic government was a legitimate form of civil discourse. 
thinking about the hearings that many of us watched in horror of hearing law enforcement officials who took this oath to uphold the Constitution having their lives threatened and in some cases taken because they were doing their job to protect the country, thinking about the shocking details we heard in the summer, and then what Congress is expected to do in the fall to continue this or having some outcome of those hearings and those investigations. How important do you think that will be, sort of looming as a shadow as we move into the elections in November, given Levy's vote, but also given her extreme positions on what is not just legitimate, but what is encouraged and endorsed here in the U.S.? Well, I think both Senator Blumenthal and Senator Murphy have been really big advocates for for doing something in response to the January 6th uh, riots. And so, you know, we've I imagine Blumenthal continues to really push that and make it an issue. But in terms of what we could see in the fall, what comes out of the January 6th committee, they're trying to figure out, well, first of all, whether to make a recommendation uh, for a potential prosecution, but also a legislative response into figuring out how to make sure that in 2024, there is a peaceful transfer of power and making sure that the vice president can't just switch and object to, you know, an electoral college vote. And so uh, Senator Murphy has been particularly big on that issue and was part of this bipartisan group to try to uh, reform the Electoral Count Act, which then informs how, you know, we basically transition between two presidents. And so that's very big for Democrats in Connecticut. And so I imagine that just continues to be a very big mounting issue in that race and just in general and how Connecticut Democrats try to make, you know, make that a really big, significant issue. After the break, we hear more from our panelists, reporter Lisa Hagen, columnist Dan Haar, and Professor Stephen T. Moore. Coming up, We'll hear about the role of wealth and money in Connecticut political elections. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. All this hour, we're discussing the recent primaries here in Connecticut, and we're looking ahead to the midterm elections in November. We're joined by Lisa Hagen, reporter for Connecticut Mirror and Connecticut Public. Dan Haar is columnist and associate editor at Hearst Connecticut Media. And Dr. Stephen T. Moore is professor at Wesleyan University. I asked Professor Moore about the tough re-election race of U.S. Representative Johanna Hayes. She's representing Connecticut's 5th Congressional District. So she's first a relatively... um, new to Congress and uh, she hasn't raised a like um, maybe as high a profile as uh, some of her um, contemporaries um, uh, especially kind of the uh, the members of uh, I think she maybe often kind of gets compared to the squad who are kind of um, also younger women of color um, and uh, for better or worse she is not um, I think raised the kind of same national profile as those politicians um, have. Um, and again, in, in some ways that could um, help her in terms of um, some of those uh, candidates had, again, uh, particularly um, uh, difficult uh, primary battles given their kind of outspoken um, uh, uh, chances and kind of left end uh, of the party. Um, but uh, Hayes has at least, um, uh, she's kind of uh, outraised her challenger um and uh she um 
again, her um, her district is not the again the, the safest, let's say, of the the um, of congressional districts for Democrats. Um, so, uh, just kind of given the the, the makeup of that uh, kind of uh, western corner of the state that um, she uh, she runs in, um, this isn't kind of the let's say the home base of the Democratic Party within the state. Um, so it's a it's a more competitive district. So um, it's just a, a kind of tougher fight in general for the party. But um, I would say Hayes is in um, relatively decent positioning, um, especially having the incumbency and um, kind of being able to point to um, uh, her her record uh, in Congress. But again, the um, the having a less of a national profile, uh, maybe than some of her contemporaries, um, and this uh, very competitive district um, definitely make it a, a challenge for her. Or a more competitive district. Dan, what I'm hearing from Stephen is that we shouldn't take anything for granted when it comes to politics in general, but particularly in Connecticut. And one of the things that I I think we too often take for granted when we think about representation, elections, and access is the role of wealth, the extreme wealth and class that not only influences the outcome of an election, but also shapes who's viewed as a credible or viable candidate. And you recently wrote a column talking about wealth and class. What's the key takeaway of that column? And what would you say to listeners about perhaps something we should do differently around this? The key takeaway is in Connecticut, we may never see a candidate run again for U.S. Senate or especially governor who's not independently wealthy, the way the system is set up. You almost can't run unless you have your own source of wealth uh, directly or indirectly. I'm not sure what to do about it. I don't think that it's viable politically or either, well, financially it's certainly viable, but I don't don't think it's viable politically to say that we're going to up the public financing. Right now, governor gets $8 million, I believe, uh, total, if you're a publicly financed governor candidate, which these, these two are not. Um, uh, Stefanowski and Lamont, and you're going to look to spend about 14 to 16 million for that race right now. Uh, that's the the threshold. Some of that is outside uh, individual expenditure money, but nonetheless, it's money that needs to be spent. So there's a gap. Um, and in the Senate, you have two extremely wealthy people. Richard Blumenthal, by virtue of marriage, is one of the richest U.S. senators, which is saying a lot. There's some money up there. Um, and uh, Leo Levy, it comes from a family that uh, made a lot of money in uh, sugar uh, in, in Cuba. And how much of that money survived? Maybe none, but she made money trading sugar. Uh, so continuing the family tradition. So there's a lot of money there and she's raised a lot of money. I don't think it's the be all and end all. It's just that the right person, it's hard to have the right person emerge, right? Uh, Governor Malloy did not have money. And he emerged and he beat a moneyed candidate. Um, so it can be done. It's just it's just that much harder. Lisa, it's hard to have the right person or the desirable candidate to emerge in that context, given what it takes to run to be credible and to even have the kind of occupation that allows the release that people need in order to run. But one of the ongoing concerns I have is not just about what it means for the candidates who run, but the signal that it gives to voters about whether they see themselves, their interests being represented and the potential impact that that can have on our faith in democracy, but also things like voter turnout. And we have mentioned so many times in this hour together about the very low voter turnout in the 2022 primaries for the state of Connecticut. 
what would you say we could do to increase that? Is it about who's running? Is it about when we hold the primaries? Or is it about voters feeling like their voice simply doesn't matter? I think it's a combination of all of those. I think we had, you know, a primary last week in August. It's just a time that people generally go away on vacation. They're trying to do this before kids go back to school. Uh, It's just that's inevitably going to have less people involved. And just that's how primaries work. I mean, they just they draw on base voters, people who are hyper focused and maybe feel really excited about a certain candidate, like maybe with Leora Levy, with having Trump involved. And so it's a combination of all that. And And I think something that will come up a lot in the secretary of the state race is just again, as we've been talking about voter access and, you know, in a state like Connecticut, there's no in-person early voting. And that's something that uh, I imagine could alleviate some of those issues because people go away, people are busy. And I know some of those things were eased a little bit during the 2020 election because of the pandemic, but we're kind of going back to, you know, a status quo. And the fact that there is no, no excuse absentee voting uh, for, you know, that's actually pretty rare among the U.S., a lot of states have that stuff. And so I think people find that pretty surprising for a fairly blue state like Connecticut. And so I think uh, that's something that'll come up a lot and could maybe draw more people into the fold in the future. Stephen, you are a... Go ahead. I just I wanted to bring you in because I think, you know, you work with young people every day. And I often hear young people who feel like their voices don't matter, but feel like the rules are stacked against them. So I'd love to hear your perspective on that in terms of not just voter turnout and participation, but sort of the health of our democracy more broadly. Yeah. Uh, so I'll just say one quick note on that uh, last point. Um, I think uh, open Having open primaries is also something that could um, definitely help with this idea of um, uh, increasing turnout, uh, just in that um, the number of unaffiliated, uh, there's a large number of unaffiliated voters in the state um, who essentially were just kind of not able to compete in the primary because they had not uh, chosen a, a party to uh, uh, to vote with. Um, so opening up that um, can uh, definitely help and um, give um, those voters who are not affiliated with the party a chance to kind of uh, make sure that they're still able to um, to express their opinions in, uh, in primary elections. Um, on the kind of broader point about the kind of um, uh, the, the state of our democracy and the kind of degree to which um, people kind of feel um, that uh, efficacy and like an ability uh, to participate, uh, I, I do think it's... Uh, it's notable, especially for young Americans, um, that um, the many of the uh, the leaders of this country, I think, are um, again uh, much older, uh, I think, than uh, than uh, the, com- the country as a whole. Um, and uh, this is something that I think uh, uh, the young voters notice, um, and um, they would kind of like to see um, like, again, kind of more incorporation of uh, young people into politics. The, uh, it's not coincidental that the kind of um, Obama uh, era was like one of the kind of high points of uh, youth participation. Um, and uh, again, many of the, um, most of the leaders in the Democratic Party right now, again, are, are still older than uh, Obama. Um, so that's kind of, uh, it, it's notable just exactly like how young he was and kind of how that, um, how that kind of helped speak to uh, young voters. Um, but especially, um, uh, there does seem to be kind of this disconnect in terms of the kind of the issues that young voters 
um, are, are very much kind of prioritizing and um, what our elected officials are kind of thinking about. Um, this is kind of ex extremely um, visible, I guess, during the um, uh, debates over the, um, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act and specifically the kind of um, uh, climate change, which is uh, something that um, many young Americans are kind of um, very much prioritizing. Um, and uh, that um, it was a good idea to see kind of, again, uh, federal government prioritizing this issue. But um, I think the, that the, um, in general, younger voters are kind of seeing a system that doesn't reflect uh, uh, doesn't reflect them or uh, their beliefs. Again, there's um, uh, there's some kind of a, a very different view of the world than um, again some of the um, uh, current politicians. So um, this mismatch has um, uh, definitely decreased uh, some uh, efficacy among young voters who uh, kind of again feel that um, again they're they're not being represented as well as they could be and uh, there are plenty of ways to kind of uh, uh, help them get more incorporated, um, but it does involve kind of bringing them into politics and kind of making space in the broader organization for um, uh, younger people and ensuring that people who again are kind of sharing these concerns are um, are kind of at the forefront. We can mention rank. We can, can mention ranked choice voting among the systems that would uh, increase engagement, I think. Uh, but I, I do believe that all of these systems changes, uh, I, I think Stephen Moore is right, that it's more than just a question of systems, that we're, we're seeing more interest in the football draft, which cannot possibly have any predictive power. It's absurd upon absurd, because you have no way to predict or know what's going to happen in a football draft. You see more interest in the football draft than you're seeing in any election except for the president. So it, th there's a gap there of enthusiasm and there's something there beyond just systems that's going on. So as we come to the close of our time together, I want to quickly ask each of you, as we move toward the, the general elections in November, what is it that you're focusing on or that you would like us collectively to think about? And so Stephen Moore, I'll start with you. What are you focusing on and, and looking toward as we move toward the November election? Um, I think uh, I'm just kind of uh, very curious to see how well um, the there there are a lot of kind of predictions uh, that uh, uh, you can make from the kind of existing political science literature about what should happen in a midterm, and um, I think just really kind of since 2016, we've seen a lot of um, uh, a lot of kind of define the, the conventional wisdom that uh, we political scientists uh, kind of have on uh, many of these uh, issues. So it'll be very interesting to see if the, um, if in general, some of these kind of bigger issues like abortion, like the kind of looming shadow of um, Trump over the Republican Party um, will be enough to uh, kind of uh, stymie the, um, the usual kind of uh, comeback that we see uh, by the losing party in a presidential election. Uh, in the first uh, midterm after that. Um, again, in 2002 was really kind of the only big exception. We've seen just about every other, after every other presidential election, the um, the losing party uh, gains a lot of seats in the midterms. Um, so I, I'm very curious to uh, see if um, this kind of looming fight over abortion and um, Trump and whatever um, uh, continuing legal issues he has uh, might, uh, kind of disrupt that pattern. I like how you worked in that word disrupt. Great job. Lisa, what about you? What are you looking forward and focusing on as we move toward November? In a similar vein to Stephen, you know, exactly that conventional wisdom that 
because Republicans are the party out of power, they can have some major gains and win either the House and or the Senate. And so I'm curious what that means for a congressional delegation like Connecticut's that is all blue right now and has been for, for you know, over a decade, almost two decades now. And so uh, what does that mean for the seniority of people like Rosa DeLauro and even someone like Senator Blumenthal? And, uh, and then kind of bringing in the Connecticut's fifth district race, uh, you know, if George Logan does prevail, you know, I'm curious if that's just part of a smaller wave of Republicans or if that's just if it ends up being this massive wave and then he ends up just helping to broaden out that, you know, that maybe potentially big majority for Republicans. So I'll be I'll be watching those two things. Dan, what about you? What are you watching? Watching the wedge between Trumpism and conservatism in Connecticut, you would expect to see that wedge grow. It's not necessarily growing. We saw the opposite with uh, Famous Claris lost to uh, Leora Levy. But they're in order for the conservative movement, which is an important movement and which should exist strongly in every state, including Connecticut, whether you believe in, the, in, those, in those issues, stances or not, there needs to be a wedge between the cancerous, toxic, wave of Trumpism, and I hope it is only a wave and not a generational change, and true conservatism. Connecticut is the place to see it. It is up to us in the media to see that the candidates who are running for office repudiate Trumpism while embracing their conservative uh, uh, beliefs. Our panel today included Dan Haar, columnist and associate editor at Hearst Connecticut Media. Lisa Hagen is federal policy reporter for the Connecticut Mirror and Connecticut Public. And Dr. Stephen T. Moore is assistant professor of government at Wesleyan University. Disrupted is produced by James Scoble-Wolf, J. Carlisle Larson, Kevin Chang-Barnum, and Katie Talarski. Special thanks to our interns, Anya Grindalski and Mira Raju. You can listen to all of the previous episodes of Disrupted by finding us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Disrupted and Connecticut Public. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening. <laughs>